Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. Unusually, Solidarity Breakfast is pre-recorded. We usually get up, we usually crawl out from under our dunas and make our way here on a Saturday morning. But today, 3CR is in the midst of a major repair of Studio One. So uh, we're, uh, we've supplied our programming beforehand. Now, uh, today we're going to go across some of the things that have happened over this week. Uh, one of them, of course, is the election. At the end of the program, we're going to have a chat with uh, Don Sutherland around uh, the uh, important uh, outcomes for workers since the Labor Party failed so miserably at the polls on uh, Saturday. But uh, it, it, there's more at stake, of course, than uh, getting uh, electoral uh, representation in Parliament. Workers still need to have fairness and wage increases and uh, the environment still needs to be dealt with uh, despite the notion that uh, some people have that uh, it's uh, not real, it's uh, an imagined fear campaign. Interestingly enough, it's been pointed out that an awful lot of the electoral uh, messages coming out of the LNP and uh, other kind of parties that are on their coattails seem to have been outlandish lies have, have uh, you know, issues like uh, telling pensioners that their labour will take their pensions away from them and uh, real estate agents sending letters to uh, renters saying that uh, if LA, uh, the government changes to labour, then their rents will go up. All these uh, things that are unrelated to uh, a change in government. Uh, and it leads one to wonder if it, were, it was not possible for the LNP government to get in without uh, false advertising. It's an interesting, uh, they couldn't do it cleanly. Uh, I mean, it's all very well to uh, disagree with someone, but to actively uh, send out false messages in order to uh, take a false victory is uh, quite um, opposite to the mantra that's going around at the moment coming from their lips that they have a mandate to do a whole range of quite uncivilised things. However, that's uh, something for people to cogitate about. Uh, and some people would say that, uh, cynical people would say that, uh, don't you realise they all lie? Well, actually, usually things have got a uh, kernel of truth in them. 
this uh, this just seems to be an outrageous flim-flam going on around the place, similar to what's going on in America with uh, the election of uh, Trump. Uh, lies, lies and damn lies. Anyway... We're going to start with a speech that was given by Liz Humphreys. She's a University of Technology Sydney lecturer. Now, she's just releasing a book called How Labor Built Neoliberalism, uh, Australia's Accord, The Labor Movement and the Neoliberal Project. Now, she gave this speech and other speeches of this sort uh, around the traps, but this one was at Marxism 2019 here in Melbourne. And... uh, Interestingly enough, uh, I've had some responses from people who were around uh, the time uh, working in the labour movement, in the unions uh, around this, and there is a bit of contention about one of the uh, uh, items put forward by Liz, uh, which is that it was because of the neoliberal experiment that uh, the density of union membership went down. But it's been pointed out to me that... uh, when um and that you know labor leaders and the union movement themselves were responsible for this by kowtowing to the accord but uh interestingly enough someone's pointed out that uh in actual fact it was uh, earlier than this that uh, laws passed by the uh liberal government uh was by Fraser was the first nail in the coffin because uh it uh uh, legislated against patent bar- bargaining and uh, that was uh, the death knell of uh, uh, effective uh, work towards uh, better wages and conditions. And this was in a, a environment where there was a lot of uh, uh, unrest uh, and wages had been increasing but people's uh, uh, living conditions hadn't uh, improved, which is a kind of an oxymoron, kind of strange. But anyway, let's hear what Liz, what Liz Nichol, uh, Liz Humphrey's contentions are. Look, I think where I want to start is I think Australia has a particular type of state. Sometimes we think about um, nation states and state projects as being quite similar in advanced capitalist countries. But there's a particular history to Australia, which for me is about an over-involved state. There was not capitalism in Australia, and over time, in the, um, from 1788 um, onwards, a state um, and the colonies previous to that had to implement um, and enforce capitalism. And that required, as we know, a whole range of things. It required massacres of Indigenous people, the commodification of land, the commodification of labour, stopping squatters, stopping giving free land to free convicts, um, to ensure that actually capitalist social relations could be established in Australia. It also meant that Australia had a particular um, form of labour relations, that soon after Federation, a conciliation and arbitration process was set up in Australia that involved unions um, going into that process to negotiate outcomes um, for workers and workers' wages. And I think you have to understand the accord in the context of um, that history of kind of what we might call corporatism, where actually unions in Australia have often looked to the state or to courts to settle um, industrial matters for them. Um, 
in the academic literature and um, in discussions amongst trade unionists, you often see questions about, well, are there kind of dependent trade unions in Australia? Has that been the history where trade unions have relied on courts and arbitrations to win gains? And has there been a less independent um, trade union um, history in Australia? So what, what do we make of the accord coming along, I guess, in um, 1983 in that context? Well, there, for me, there are two really important things. The 1970s was a period of um, extreme economic crisis and extreme um, industrial upheaval. So there were five recessions between um, uh, 72 and 82, really, which absolutely massacred, particularly manufacturing, but workplaces in general. Inflation was extremely high and unions were fighting to um, both make gains, right, to get a greater share of the pie towards wages over profits, but then also just fighting to keep wages, um, keeping pace with um, inflation. That decade is the... Um, you know, has the greatest level of industrial activity in Australia's history. The two peaks of strike days in Australia occur in that decade. But I think by the time you get to the end of that decade, neither unions or the Fraser government have had a decisive victory. Fraser's not been able to crush a militant union movement, but nor have the unions been able to resolve the questions of pressures on wages and the economic crisis. And I think you have to understand the accord coming out of that context. Australian unions are at their strongest point in history, but they've still not be able to, been able to decisively um, implement um, a strategy that has maintained the wages um, of their members. The, the ranks of unemployed people are growing inside the trade unions and there is enormous pressure um, on families. Anybody who grew up in that era will be familiar of the sorts of um, strains and pressures. Now, obviously, the accord is an agree a social contract, right? It's an agreement between um, the, the Labor opposition and then they implement it when they come to power under Hawke in 1983 and the trade union movement. And social contracts or corporatism vary from country to country. Sometimes it also involves business, right? And the accord had elements of the business community involved in um, coming up with, like, the steel plan and other plans. But it's really a settlement between parties. And... The, there's two real agendas. I think the unions are exhausted by a militant strategy at the end of that period, and I think Tom O'Lincoln's book on Fraser is absolutely fantastic in the last chapter on the sort of tensions and the sort of exhaustion of um, the union strategy and why they start looking to the accord. You've also got a Labor Party that wants to come into power, reassure um, business community that it's not going to be like Whitlam, that they're going to deal with the militancy of the trade union movement in the 1970s, and they're, they're the only party that can control that militancy. And I think you get those two things coming together to um, sign a social contract. Now, there are lots of other elements that go on. The emphasis in my book is how do the trade unions become incorporated into this state-run project to, to radically transform the political economy in Australia? And Jonathan Strauss's PhD and Liz's book are much more on the emphasis of what kind of resistance happens to that. They're not different, they're not, uh, different stories about the court, but perhaps um, two different elements. For me... Um, one, one union to look at in this period is um, the AMWU, and in fact, like mentioned on um, Liz's flyer as well. How do we get 
a trade union like the Manufacturing Metal Workers Union um, that is the largest and most militant union in the country at the start of the Accord pe period flip from opposing wage moderation and opposing um, social contracts and agreement to backing a social contract and backing the suppression of wages. And I think it, you have to understand that exhaustion of strategy, them not knowing what to do next in order to protect wages, to increase unemployment benefits, to deal with the numbers of unemployed manufacturing workers they have within their ranks, um, and the, the not being able to resolve the economic crisis in Australia. I think, for me, when we think back at the Accord, it's not about just saying bad people do bad things. We've got to look at the Accord as a structural problem, right? It's not just about Laurie Carmichael from, um, you know, one particular union or and, and him doing bad things. It's not just about Kelty being a bad person. It is about a particular strategy where the unions see their interests as aligned with the interests of the state, right? And, and that the state and the arbitration um, system as being the only people that can ensure some kind of justice for workers. And that's why I guess I started with the question of what is the nature of Australian unionism historically and why might they look to the Labor Party and look to an arbitration system to ensure um, that kind of... Uh, that the, the pressures of the economic crisis get dealt with in that way. So in... 1981, the metal workers start a big campaign for a 35-hour week and sh strike numbers hit the second sort of peak in that decade I was talking about. They're arguing the economic crisis should be um, solved by people working less and companies creating more jobs. So it's about quality work and people still maintaining their pay. When another sort of... There's a brief kind of mining recovery and under Fraser and it kind of looks like things might get going and then there's another deep recession. Um, and into that space walks Hawke and the trade union movement saying we're going to both resolve the economic crisis and we're going to resolve the pressures on wages um, for workers. But pretty quickly when the Labor Party comes to power and is implementing the accord, shifts started to occur. The sorts of promises that wages will be maintained under the accord um, are not fulfilled. So it's only really in the first couple of years that uh, wages are increased at the rate of inflation, but pretty soon they're not increased at the rate of um, inflation. And for most of the accord period, we have wage suppression. And the unions are going along with this. Um, at the leadership level, are going along with this. The accord is famously really... Social contracts are, in generally, about uh, putting pressure on wages and saying no further claims. So reducing industrial action by saying, if we give you this wage rise, you're not allowed to go on strike for anything else. And that's what the Accord implements. In return, in Australia, uh, the unions have been after a better social wage for a period, particularly because there are many more unemployed people and um, unemployment benefits are absolutely terrible in that period. And there's superannuations really just confined to... Um, some of the white-collar unions and uh, some of the more militant blue-collar unions, like my dad worked in an oil refinery and they had superannuation, but most people don't have it. It was only won by unions that could sort of manoeuvre it. Uh, and I think when, we look, when unions look back on the Accord now, um, there's sort of mixed feelings. But when people in the Labor Party look back on the Accord, they want to argue that this was the, period, this was the strategy that resolved the economic problem problems and gave Australia a better social wage, that family payments went up, 
Medicare was reintroduced and that superannuation was introduced. Now, as we know, Medicare is not exactly a universal health system um, and the cost of um, health care has met big gaps. Physio and dental and psychology, psychiatry particularly come to mind as being largely borne by individuals and their families. So I find it really ironic that people want to say a period where wages were suppressed better than under Reagan and under Thatcher, um, that the sweeteners for these deals are Medicare with all its problems. Like, we'll defend it until you know, our dying breaths, but it is, it is full of problems and all we need to do is look at some of the European systems to see how lax it is and superannuation. Here we have one of the largest capital funds, um, well, the largest capital fund in the country, which is effectively gambled on the stock market in a period where a process of financialisation has meant that the biggest profits are made not in manufacturing or other um, uh, types of production, but actually in gambling things on the stock market. And this is, you know, ordinary people's pensions. The pension system has been undermined to something ridiculous and that we're told we need to rely on that. So in the GFC, if you had retired and your money was in superannuation and you are planning to live on that, um, you know, my father lost 50% of his money. People cannot make that money back if you're already retired. So the argument that you know, super comes and goes and you eventually get it back. It's just rubbish, as we know. I think we've got to maintain an argument that it's... We shouldn't have to compromise on those things. We both should be um, entitled to a good <laughs> welfare system that delivers uh, security in retirement and good health care for all, this, all of us at the same time as wages that are at the level where you can actually um, live a decent life. But the bigger thing for me about the Accord period is about that question of the labour movement being incorporated into a state project. So whilst some in the union movement might have imagined the Accord as going to be this uh, superannuation to kickstart manufacturing, developing a fairer Australia about um, ensuring that everybody got had to sort of tighten their belts at the same time and... Um, this is, this is not what happened. Profits went up and wages went down. And if we look at that share of the pie that the union movements had fought in the 70s for, the crime is that a militant union movement finally won a share, gets smashed under the accord, and that that goes backwards. Now, people want to say it's all because workers were too greedy and demanded too much of their share. Well, actually, that's what unions are about, about saying a bigger share to the majority of us, and a smaller share to profits. They're still making record profits in this period, right? It's not like they weren't making profits. Um, but critically, it's a period of the disorganisation of the labour movement. The process of bringing unions inside the state and inside processes of setting wages, of, you know, adjusting how... Uh, steel was going to be manufactured, about shedding jobs, about introducing technologies that um, laid off labour and didn't retrain labour to, um, to have new, new jobs um, in a changed economy is what the Accord was about. So towns like Wollongong get absolutely decimated in um, the steel plant and there are plans in other industries, in um, the automotive industry and other industries. I think for me today, then, why harp on about the Accord? I think 
one thing is we have to keep asking ourselves the question, what would an independent trade union movement look like in Australia? How did the accord undermine trade union independence? How did it destroy rank and file networks that have not been able to be rebuilt? So we, can, we would sometimes look at the headline figures that, um, you know, at the start of the accord period, union density was at 50%. It's now at 13 and a half or something like that and 9% in the private sector. And whilst we might see small explosions and incredible militant struggles like the recent chemist warehouse struggle to over and the, the, the gain over converting labour hire into permanent jobs. These are isolated and the trade union movement has still not recovered many governments after um, Hawke and Keating. I think we also live with that legacy of unions, traditionally many of them, looking to the arbitration system as going to solve the problems of... Um, uh, workers' needs in Australia. At a period where we've actually seen a revival of questions of how are we going to deal with both economic crises and economic instability everywhere, recoveries have been patchy since the GFC, housing costs are extremely high in lots of um, those advanced capitalist countries, and an immense environmental crisis. We see often people talking about how we need a new New Deal or a new Green Deal to solve these problems. I think, did anyone see the um, Ocasio-Cortez and Naomi Klein video about what would a Green New Deal look in the future? Looking, you know, it's set in 2030 or 2050, looking back saying, if we transform society to solve these um, problems of climate, what would it look like? One thing it's pretty silent on is who, who are they looking to to do that work? Right? And I think one of the things we need to think about, activists need to think about in the present is, are we just looking again to the state who has different interests to us? The state has its own interests, which are not workers' interests, about how much they're willing to pay people, what sort of circumstances, what sort of services to solve those problems. For me, we can't really look back to World War II to say just because the state did it then, transformed economies um, so it could go to war, that suddenly we can get... We know we've done it in the past for that political ends. We can, we can do it now for a more, um, a, a more progressive ends. What will be the decisive factor is the level of organisation in communities, in, in the environment movement and in trade unions... Those transformations are necessary, but how we make those transformations is not about coming as a compromise with state and business, but what sort of demands we can independently organise within trade union movements and social movements. Mm. Thanks. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019... June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July 
at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23 to 29 Victoria Street, Coburg. The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie fair go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions, and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477-236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition, free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. Santa Concha, what the hell is a completo anyway? It's a Chilean hot dog, mate. What happens when lots of people get together and eat completos? It becomes a completada bailable. If you really want to experience a completada bailable and support our 3CR community, come to our fundraiser, Saturday 8th of June at Moreland City Bandroom, 16 Cross Street, East Brunswick, at 6pm. Come and check your culo with DJ Twin and DJ Otorongo and live music by Abe Danovitz, Little Chili and their mates. Limpiese la boquita que le quedó paltita. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, as I've already noted, that uh, because of repairs at 3CR, this is a pre-record. Unusually, we usually get here in the morning, take the sleep out of our eyes, drink a cup of coffee and uh, launch in. But So don't ring up uh, unless you want to tell the technicians that they're doing a great job. Now, uh, which they are, of course, uh, we're moving on to another speech that came from Marxism. It was a great uh, conference, actually, Marxism 2019. And when I was going through the program again, I realised how many more options there were that I would have liked to have listened to. But this one is Justin Acker Chacon, who was a special guest. He is from the USA. Now, the reason why I'm playing this is because they had this uh, event where they uh, got uh, three of the different uh, speakers to give uh, an idea of the type of uh, actions that are going on in, against uh, neo-fascist actions in their country. So one was from the USA, one was from England, one was from Australia. And uh, since many of the... Uh, fairly uh, awful elements of uh, American politics seem to be playing out in Australia at the moment. I thought it would be really interesting to hear about some of the creative methods that uh, uh, Justin and his friends have been involved in to uh, defend uh, people, uh, refugees and others uh, in um, against neo-fascist attacks effectively because often people feel that uh, they are defenceless but uh, he proves us wrong. I come with visuals. (laughs) Buenas noches, good evening uh, comrades, compañeros. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, resisting the right in the United States. Far right wing ideas uh, and organizations in the U.S. are nothing new. Uh, They're deeply rooted in a history of settler colonialism following genocide of original peoples, slavery, subsequent segregation that has only been partially dismantled, racist xenophobia, and a long history of repressing uh, migrants, especially from the Americas, Africa, and Asia. 
And these have been rehabilitated through the generations, reshaped and calibrated to target pop, uh, groups and populations in order to preserve white nationalism and racialized capitalism within the architecture of capitalist accumul accumulation at almost every epoch of the country's history. The far right has always had some degree of legitimacy within the narrow uh, confines of mainstream U.S. political discourse and have been preserved, protected, or given support from sections of the ruling class and within the state itself. In the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan, the preeminent uh, white terrorist organization in the United States, had four million members, had uh, elected officials openly affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan in 13 different states, um, and many more who openly sympathized in the 1920s. Uh, from the 1940s to the 1970s, the southern wing of the Democratic Party, the Dixiecrats, were the pro-segregationist wing uh, aligned with the KKK that fought to uphold white supremacy as official doctrine uh, over the course of three decades. The KKK, uh, neo-Nazi groups, and white nationalist militias have targeted the border. The border has been a, a central focal point of far-right and uh, re racist and reactionary activity for some time now. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, started uh, what they called the, the Klan Border Watch. And ever since then, there have been uh, episodes of new groups uh, following suit. The ideologies of older white supremacist groups like the KKK and others have mixed with anti-immigrant and Islamophobic and other racist uh, ideas before and into the Trump era, of course, although we've seen a qualitative leap in terms of how the far right and fascist groups have been given license, uh, gained more confidence, and evolved into more strands of a far right and fascist activity, uh, usually embodied in the concept of the alt-right, a, a term invented by uh, by neo-Nazis. Trumpism's vulgar, racist, misogynistic, and xenophobic authoritarianism, coupled with state violence against Latino immigrants and black populations, have served as a catalyst for the forces of white nationalism, fascism, uh, etc., to gain confidence and mobilize in a more coherent and coordinated way at a time of intensifying social and economic polarization in the United States. It's expressing itself in the form of terrorist attacks increased street-level violence, targeted actions against the left, uh, people of color and immigrants, uh, of course, ideological battles on the campuses, uh, you know, into the uh, social media, and through overt and covert actions from within the state itself. Far-right politicians, police, right-wing bureaucrats, agencies like the Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the Border Patrol have been activated. Elements within these groups have been activated um, uh, to target vulnerable groups in different ways, with, with a sense of impunity. Um, Trumpism, both in rhetoric and in policy, especially through uh, you know, racist executive order, orders targeting Muslims and Latinos, has created the social political conditions for the far-right and fascist groups to begin building organizational capacity that is expressing itself in different ways on a national scale. Hate crimes have increased consistently in the United States in the last three years, a 17% increase in uh, just last year to over 8,000, uh, the majority of those being uh, race and ethnicity, ethnic and religious-based. Um, between 2011, oh, I'm sorry, I wanted to point out also that uh, 
hate crimes go up during have gone up during the last two election cycles specifically, as we see the more deployment of over uh, racist uh, rhetoric uh, associated with uh, right wing Republicans uh, in campaigns, especially associated with Trump. <clears throat> Between 2011 and 2017, there were at least 38 attacks on uh, against places of worship, churches, synagogues, and mosques across the U.S. And as some of you may have heard just last week, a white supremacist burned down three uh, black Christian churches uh, in Louisiana. And it turned out to be uh, the son, a white supremacist son of a, I'm guessing, white supremacist sheriff's deputy. Uh, police, sheriffs, military, and former military uh, have been shown on numerous occasions to actively participate in far-right groups. Far-right groups have moved into police departments in, in several parts of the country as a, as a strategy. Um, police, uh, including cases I've seen through my own experiences, have openly uh, aligned themselves uh, in street demonstrations with far right uh, in cases in which they support the far right uh, in attacking uh, left groups. Uh, recently in Portland, uh, it was revealed that the, the, the police department was actively coordinating with uh, a far right group there, giving logistics and information about uh, left wing and anti fascist protesters to protect the far right and give them information about where they can attack them at their most vulnerable points. So um, I want to then uh, shift gears and talk a little bit about um, resistance. And I want to start a little bit back in the past because I want to emphasize that um, while, the, again, there's a qualitative shift in terms of the confidence of the far right, it, uh, this is not uh, a Trump, a purely Trump or Republican project, uh, uh, result of the Trump or the Republican Party. This has been the result of U.S. ruling class politics for some time. Uh, by 2004, the, the criminalization of immigrants had become a bipartisan uh, project. That election year, the Bush administration had made cracking down on undocumented immigrants a central plank of his reelection campaign. Not to be undone or outdone, uh, Democratic Party candidate John Kerry attacked Bush for not doing enough to protect the country from terrorism, emphasizing how Bush's policies left our borders and ports unprotected. This was followed by an incessant series of one-upmanship between the two parties at the, at the local, state, and federal level um, uh, in which there was an approach to criminalize immigrants in every possible way. And it's in the, under these conditions that we saw the, the rapid growth of what I would argue is the first proto-fascist anti-immigrant group uh, that entered into the scene at that time, uh, which was called the Minutemen. While they developed in different parts of the country, they made their first major forays to the border of San Diego County, where I'm from. Within this political terrain created by the war on immigrants, they organized armed paramilitary groups, incorporating, uh, also incorporating fascist, neo-Nazi, and other subgroups under one banner of the Minutemen to go to the border to do the, the job that the government wouldn't do. We, uh, socialists and other uh, anti-racist and anti-fascist organizers, began organizing. Uh, liberal groups, uh, at that point in time, made a big emphasis on the importance of ignoring uh, what they were doing. Um, and we thought that that was a tactical error, especially as part of their campaign at that time was to go to the border with guns and, uh, and attract as many media outlets as fascists as a way to project, project the idea that they were um, stopping immigration. 
Uh, so this is a picture of one of the first showdowns. This is a picture, these are pictures that were taken by our group uh, right on the border here. <laughs> so uh, we uh, organized uh, from San Diego and Los Angeles. We put out broad, a broad call for people to come together. Uh, we mobilized about 150 people to go out into the middle of the desert <laughs> uh, where the Minutemen were organizing. Um, we marched into the town in which they had set up their camp with a big banner that says, uh, uh, we want a world without borders and nobody is illegal. I had this other great picture, you're going to have to use your imagination. Um, <laughs> as, the, as these uh, uh, armed Minutemen were gathering in a, in a hall that they had rented to begin, their, um, to begin their forays out into the desert, we had uh, surrounded them and held them um, in the hall for several hours until, you guessed it, the police came uh, and uh, helped uh, escort them out. Uh, we regrouped, um, and that night, um, with all the media camera cameras around, we, uh, we broke up into smaller groups because their intention was to go out into the night, uh, all dressed up in their military gear, and to point guns um, into the dark uh, to, to basically you know, uh, catch or scare or at least alert the, uh, the Border Patrol to where immigrants were trying to cross. We, we also decided to try some creative tactics. Um, and one of the things that we agreed that we wanted to do to disrupt them was to get big radios um, and to go out in the proximity of where they were hunkered down behind bushes and, and to play loud Mexican banda music. Um, and they were really frustrated by that. Um, and in the process of, of, of these encounters, we started to get a lot more media coverage of what we were doing, um, and we were able to get our voice out there showing that these groups uh, could be confronted. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to a speech given by Justin Aka-Jacon around actions against uh, neo-fascists in America. Let's continue. After this, they changed their tactics. They started to try to organize countermarches in border towns. In one case, we uh, brought so many people to one town that they tried to march through that the mayor uh, uh, decided to cancel their, uh, the Minutemen's march through the town. Uh, after that, they, they reorganized and went to day labor centers and in places like San Diego, a lot of um, undocumented and uh, uh, documented migrants uh, gather in front of places like where they sell construction supplies and they do day labor. They started to regroup to go uh, 
uh, harass and intimidate day laborers. We mobilized day labor defense committees across the city. Um, they went into farm labor camps and they tore up. Um, the, in San Diego County, we have very poor farm workers who live in canyons because they don't get paid enough to even live in, in housing. And so they would go into the canyons and they would rip up uh, their tarps and things like that. And we would organize defense campaigns that way. So, uh, so fortunately, uh, because of the, the persistent organization, we demoralized and demobilized uh, the Minutemen in San Diego, and, and they ceased to be a force for a few years, uh, of course, until Trump, um, Trump was elected, um, and now they're rearing their heads once again. Another significant confrontation took place after the Unite the Right rally, the, the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally in August of 2017. Um, as people will know, uh, this, this was a, a, a gathering of uh, racist and neo-Nazis, a kind of coming out party uh, and, in which they attacked counter-protesters in front of police with impunity, again revealing how much uh, sympathies lie, police sympathies lie with the, the racists, and later murdered Heather Heyer and wounded several others after a Nazi drove his car into a crowd, anti-fascists who were celebrating you know, the, the, the fact that they uh, stood up to these guys. Two weeks later, there was an attempt to replicate the event in Boston, Massachusetts, and Washington, D.C. In the case of Boston, um, socialists and anti-racists and anti-fascists were able to organize a substantial outpouring of opposition. Some 15,000 people took part in a two-mile march uh, across Boston where the, uh, to directly go to where the uh, white supremacists were gathering. By the time the march arrived, the two dozen or so fascists who had the courage to show up had already packed up and left, <laughs> of course, with a heavy police escort. The mass march, designed to use numbers to overwhelm and disperse the right, brought together all who had a stake in confronting the momentum that had been gaining by the violent white supremacist movement at that point. This was through the painstaking work of socialists and other organizers to bring together labor unions, NGOs, liberal organizations, indigenous rights groups, LGBTQI plus groups, Black Lives Matter, Muslim groups, uh, and more. The scale of the organizing gave confidence to organizations such as the Massachusetts Teachers Association, uh, a teachers union, the state's largest union, to mobilize their members to attend. This tactic, combined with a single point of unity and opposition to the fascist, helped mobilize a massive and inspiring turnout. The large movement, viewed in real time by the fascists that I had previously mentioned, watching on their phones, a mass of 15,000 people coming, led them to flee, to run away as possible. <laughs> The networks formed through the organizing process have, had pledged to continue working together against any manifestation of the far right, and in that region, the far right has been uh, largely demoralized. This experience is also, uh, this also took place simultaneously in Washington, D.C. A small group of uh, racists and neo-Nazis protected uh, by the police, and you see several thousand people following them, hounding them, yelling, racist go home, Nazi scum get off our streets, and all kinds of other great chants. Uh, yeah, so that was pretty inspiring. Um, this is Jason Kessler, one of the organizers, who was later chased uh, into a parking garage, again protected by police, and the people reclaimed, you know, they claimed their town, their city. Uh, there has also been a significant uh, uh, fight against the alt-right on the campuses. <clears throat> alt-right figurehead Richard Spencer tried to take a different route. Yes, hisses please. Uh, the college campuses. 
His self-professed plan was to go into the, quote, academic Marxist-controlled territory, if only it was true, (laughs) and to give racist lectures in order to recruit. He attempted to tour the U.S. in March of 2018, but was confronted by mass protest outside and inside. In Lansing, Michigan, 500 people uh, protested outside the Michigan State University Pavilion, where only 35 people turned out to actually hear him speak. And he also tried to speak in Florida, uh, at Florida State University, and the, again, was outnumbered with protesters filling up most of the space on the inside and standing up and chanting when he was trying to speak, uh, and many more on the outside. This led him to recognize that his attempt to move through these colleges was only going to lead to more protest, and he became utterly demoralized as well. After only speaking on, on, speaking on only three campuses, each of which anti-fascists turned out in the hundreds and demoralized those in attendance, shortly after he proclaimed via a video message to his supporters, quote, the college tour is not about pitched battles. Uh, not, it's not about pitched battles. It's about intellectual activity. <laughs> Until something changes, I'm going to have to rethink how I do this. <clears throat> At least for the foreseeable future, I don't think it's a good idea for me to host an event that's wide open to the public. (laughs) And I wanted to conclude, um, I'm running out of time here, I wanted to conclude um, by uh, pointing out that Trump, uh, you know, uh, has come to the defense of people like Richard Spencer. Recently, uh, Trump issued uh, an executive order in inserting, inserting his administration in the sort of ideological battle on the, on the campuses in, in this particular case. The order directs 12 federal agencies in coordination with the director of the Office of, the, of Management and Budget to take appropriate steps to ensure that institutions receiving federal research or education grants promote free inquiry. In other words, uh, if, you don't, if, 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 if you don't protect the, the free speech of the fascists, um, then we're going to uh, find ways to bully you and... Uh, and it, it's not only that, but this has allowed um, this has allowed even you know sort of right wing administrators and conservatives and liberal uh, liberals accommodating to the to the sort of right wing shift to um, become emboldened to try to silence left o- opposition. Uh, and I, I had uh, one more video that doesn't really make sense without sound, um, but this is uh, this is a uh, a young Chicana uh, Mexican American uh, who. Uh, in uh, University of Arizona uh, came to protest against the presence of Border Patrol agents. Uh, and she's zooming in and out. And she's saying, murderers, <laughs> murderers, get off my campus. Um, and she, she disrupts the, uh, the, this recruitment um, presentation by the Border Patrol, who are notorious for uh, violence against um, immigrants. Um, and, you know, f- for, for several days, she was my hero, and I just kept chanting. <laughs> um, but to give you to give you a sense of how um, the Bush, I mean, excuse me, the Trump, uh, the sort of executive order, and the, t- the attempt to push uh, the silencing of people like her, uh, the University of Arizona president uh, actually filed charges against her, uh, misdemeanor charges, which could amount to jail time uh, for her asserting her right to, to not have people who terrorize her community um, and who are a threat to people like her speaking openly and trying to recruit other people from the campus. So I'll, hopefully these show um, you know, a glimpse of how the right is, has been on the march, but also how, uh, how we have fought back. 
um, and how there have been victories gained, but they also show the danger in which uh, economic capitalist crisis, immigrant scapegoating, and the rightward slide of liberal accommodation, uh, you know, in terms of the Democrats uh, moving to the right and accommodating with the idea that the right should have free speech or contributing to the, to the persecution of immigrants um, and you know, giving confidence to the anti-immigrant right, how this can lead to their growth and why we need to build campaigns that confront and demoralize their members and discourage recruitment uh, anywhere they go. Thank you. A weak solidarity, Becky Teamless, the win, pure coincidence, Saturday morning, out for my morning walk, I just happened to run into Socialist Party Supremo, brackets temporary, and until then, would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, heading for the polling booth with Chloe, looking lovingly. Little Billy carrying this big brown paper bag, good for the environment, the only thing plastic, little Billy himself. The bag so big as he tried to balance it, he couldn't see that it had broken and its contents were trailing behind him. Uh, morning, little Billy. Chloe, uh, what have you got in the bag, little Billy? The election. I've got it in the bag. Uh, are you aware the bag's broken, that the contents are falling out, they're all over the street behind you? And thus the people spoke, the one poll that matters, and the result confirmed the cliché, clearly articulating the truth that we simply cannot afford to save the planet, but which, taking a positive out of Saturday, will fry and die in a very healthy economic state. We can't afford to destroy that economy by allowing the refugees from our sundry invasions around the doomed globe, on the coattails of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, to get anywhere near true blue Aussie and destroy our jobs. Although refugee is a misnomer for no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people. We can't afford not to cut penalty rates of those lower-than-low-paid workers who can afford to lose them and help their poor, caring employers. At the other end of the scale, the needy, filthy rich who pay no tax will continue to get their handouts from those who do, and quite franking, franking? Uh, frankly, they deserve every cent. Well, the list of humanitarian and compassionate outcomes goes on. Slash taxes for the filthy rich guaranteed to trickle down to we mere plebs. But what more would we expect from the caring business class party, so caring a party it has caring in its name? Well, along with a bit of hayseed and sheep shit. So as we look forward to the next three years, our one consolation is that little Billy's ambition was thwarted and it couldn't happen to a nicer fighter for his class. Yet the irony is the policies the gloating victors are blaming for the Socialist Party's rejection are about the only decent things he's ever said. Whereas almost any other opposition leader with those policies in the context of this election would have won. No one else could have sounded so artificial, a cardboard replica of a politician. Yet since then, every shot of the loser is with Chloe staring lovingly. And I must say, sincere or feigned, I could never look at little Billy lovingly. After all, he's just delivered us three more years of scuttle them and that lot. Regular listener might recall the week that was did say week one of the campaign that little Billy seemed to be doing his best to snatch defeat from the jaws of. Well, he succeeded and will now go down in history as the answer to the occasional trivia question, the man who outdid John Hewson. Mentioned last week, hoping to give a fillip to the socialist campaign, former big supremo, our great and beloved former Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself, decided to die. 
The final tribute to this working class hero, apart from clubbing tributes from former big uh, caring business class, big supremos, tiny a bit more for the bosses and the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, was not a socialist government but a vote for neoliberalism. That expression of the great virtues that are good for all of us, greed and exploitation. So in the ongoing government, Nuclear Hawk's legacy will be remembered, much more than if the socialists had won, and he'd like that, showing he had a foot in both camps in death as he did in life. Well, he really only had a foot in one camp, although in fairness to little Billy and his lot, we would have still had a government dedicated to those neoliberal virtues, unless by fairness he meant the eradication of greed and exploitation, in other words, the destruction of capitalism. But we don't think he meant that. Oh, let's be honest, he had no intention of eradicating greed and exploitation, just making them seem a bit less malignant. The socialists have already begun the post-mortem, deciding primarily that their big, big mistake was policy. We made the mistake of having a policy, and especially suggesting there is the big end of town that landlords and shareholders are ripping off, that fossils may be a bit of a problem for the planet, that evil unions and workers have both hands tied behind their backs, but thankfully we can now expect policy-free and an admission that there is no such thing as class struggle, something they should have learned from Nuclear Hawk himself, who as a true socialist realised caring employers and lazy avaricious workers have common interests, equal interests, symbiotic interests. The socialists are looking at what won the election for Scuttle them and the team and plan to adopt those tactics, making the choice in three years even more diverse. The best news arising out of the election is that shares in almost every sector of the delicate flower that is the economy have soared, showing how fragile the delicate flower is that little Billy was seen as a threat. He certainly proved a threat to the Socialist Party. When I mentioned tiny a bit more for the bosses, a pain stabbed at my heart, a, a giant sense of loss, a tragic loss for satire. Thank goodness we still have Constable Peter Duffer and Barnacle. Imagine if we'd lost them all in one fell swoop. After a typical Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin balanced article by a regular columnist which praised Constable Duffer for winning the election, mainly because he challenged former Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull, allowing Scuttlebin to become Big Supremo, rather damned with fate, I would have thought, but anyway, the Wapping Sin's usual array of deep-thinking readers flooded the letters column in agreement, with first place going to Cruno with a very simple message. That's what it said, Cruno, K-O-U-N-O. Peter Duffer was the hero that we needed. God bless him. Well said, Cruno. You can't get much simpler than that. Although Daniel is worth a mention, even though he was trying to praise Constable Duffer. It was all a bit like a zombie movie. He opened, and I thought, that captured Constable Duffer perfectly, almost spot on. Beyond the whopping sin readers in the big wide world of brain power assisted by generations of inbreeding, her most gracious majesty's grandson, the bald one who keeps producing new little mouths for the British taxpayer to feed, said he sometimes felt anxieties. Um, what anxieties, bald one? I get extremely anxious that the people might wake up one day to what leeches and bludges we are. That would be a worry. Big worry, big, big.
big worry. Uh, by the way, what is it you do? I print. Uh, that's a job. Unless they wake up. Anxiety also in the White House as they line up evil Iran and evil Venezuela for a bit of liberation and regime change. Uh, yes, what's your really big anxiety we asked train-killing advisor John Belt up on? I get extremely anxious that they might wriggle out of our invasion. Imagine that anxiety on top of evil, evil Venezuela, which keeps slipping out of our reasons to invade. The guy we chose has turned out to be a bit of an idiot. How hard is it to overthrow a government elected by ignorance, by an ignorant people? Chile, among many, showed how easy it is. It's maddening. Well, that, that probably explains why he is so mad. How commendable for the US of, with all its own domestic problems like saving women from themselves by making them criminals when they have to have no right to control their own bodies and need men to do it for them, to so care about the people of Iran and Venezuela knowing their overwhelming need is a new government. We do have to marvel at the audacity of the US of when big supremo Donald Trample the poor says they will have to uh, invade evil Iran if the sabre-rattling doesn't stop. But then the only sabre-rattling is, so on that basis, in the interests of sabre-rattling world peace, the US of has now levelled 18 new charges against Julian Assange for... Well, let's ask John. John, what has he, has he done that deserves a possible death sentence? The treasonable crime of exposing U.S. of war crimes, so-called war crimes, when everyone knows the U.S. of does not commit war crimes. Why, we can't even be charged with war crimes. That's the law. The War Crimes Act, the War Crimes Law. No, 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 U.S. of law as part of our U.S. of world law. Imagine the distress for those brave young men and women in uniform, cream of U.S. of youth train killers, stressed out, knowing everyone in the country they are liberating could be the bad guys, letting off a bit of steam, taking pot shots at civilians from their chopper, nothing more than a reality version of an amusement parlor game, and this evil criminal who deserves to die, tells the whole world, and much, much more. And he's also casting our legal system, the American people, by refusing to come here like a man and face a fair trial. When John puts so reasonable an argument, we do have to be critical of Assange for refusing to face a fair trial, like his co-conspirator Chelsea Manning faced a fair trial and was eventually pardoned by the previous big supremo, and is now, as far as I know, again being locked up in solitary confinement for... 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 John! John! Oh, he's gone, sorry. Finally, Lord Rupert of Wapping is already on his favourite campaign, build the east-west link. Wapping Sin P1, just build it. A powerful alliance of transport and industry groups has urged, etc., etc. The powerful alliance being the Master Builders Profits Association, the True Blue Industry Profits Group, and the RACV. My word, there's a representative bunch of transport experts. Who knows the answer to ballooning traffic congestion is to build more and more roads or widen and extend existing ones to provide more and more space for the congestion. It's worked a treat for years. Good morning. In 2019, 3CR has the power. 
add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 039419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and it is a special pre-recorded program because 3CR is in the midst of doing uh, some repairs. But uh, we will return, of course, live next week and I just want to remind you that uh, our Radiothon is coming up. Uh, Now we're in a fairly uh, increasingly awful position with the uh, new uh, LNP government, uh, you will be more and more aware that uh, voices like uh, 3CR that uh, are uh, more increasingly more important because of the incredible amount of work that people do to actually bring information that's well researched and particular and specific around a great deal of uh, issues that are affecting ordinary Australians as well as people all around the world and that includes environmental information, uh, workers' information, uh, homeless people's information, the the issues that relate to people's everyday lives as well as uh, issues to do with specific groups of uh, refugees, uh, immigrants, uh, general human rights issues. These are all very important voices that need to be got across and are generally and are increasingly becoming uh, streamlined into a, uh, a facile message, especially with attacks on the ABC. So uh, subscribe. Subscribe to 3CR. Uh, put some money into the Radiothon till all the uh, programs like... Uh, Solidarity Breakfast will be doing uh, Radiothon appeals on live programs. Our program, of course, is going to be on the 15th. Uh, Don't forget, we're important and uh, you're important to us. So uh, let's share. Feed Radical Radio. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019... June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're going to finish the program with a chat I had with uh, Don Sutherland. Now, Don used to be one of the chief 
industrial offices at the AMWU and has a long history of involvement in uh, industrial and workers' affairs. Uh, and as he points out, he actually falls into the camp that's left of the lab of Labor and left of the uh, Greens. And he gives us a bit of an understanding of his view of what happened in the election that's just passed, and with a particular uh, emphasis on uh, where that leaves the changing the rules campaign. Uh, and this is going to be part one of this conversation. Now, this is a what he's talking about now is a fairly formal uh, discussion of some of the points that he thinks are important for people to take in on board. Now, next week, uh, we're going to play a less uh, formal, a more informal conversation that we had after this take on what happened with the elections. Uh, both very informative. Well, it's good to talk to you, Don. Um, in fact, many of the things that you were uh, thinking about, I think, when we were having chats leading up to the past election, have uh, give you much more scope to to discuss what working people and the unions need to do without the Labor Party. Um, yes, I, I think... Um uh, that's that's true. The most serious thing for those of us in the left, uh, and by that I mean people who are to the left of the Labor Party and the Greens, and that includes those who are members of those parties and those who are not. We have the primary responsibility to work out a critique of our own strengths and weaknesses in the context of what has happened. And I'll come back to that because I think it's one of the five key talking points that I'd like to explore. Okay, go for it. Well, the first one is that, of course, the result of the election is a disaster, in my view. Not an irreparable one and not one that might not be repeated by a bigger disaster inflicted by the Morrison government on itself in the next three years or so. So what, what it does mean is that there's a three to six year delay uh, for any government action to uh, deal with uh, rising inequality and poverty and, of course, with climate change and species depletion. And it all, it's also a big deal for the arc of the First Nations people struggle for a better uh, deal and a better uh, recognition and role and power in the society. In a kind of a way, the uh, health of our country, as is pointed out by the First Nations people, are intimately linked with the other elements in what you just said. Yes, I think that they probably know more about how to restore, uh, renew our natural world than any other part of our population. And therefore, the advance of their influence and power in society is critical for our um, medium-term future. So that's the first thing I think, that, you know, it is a bad result. Uh, but it's not without its possibilities either. Either. So my second main point is this, 
is that neither uh, economic uh, fragility nor climate change, species depletion, those things are not going to go away. We are going to have an economic downturn soon. And how much that is a crisis and how deep it goes is a little bit unknown right now. But that, that downturn, maybe crisis, is going to intersect with worsening environmental problems. And it's going to cause problems for the government itself because it means government intervention becomes more urgent. And if the government decides to do that, perhaps under pressure from some employer organisations who they are likely to listen to a little bit more, then that's going to ruin their commitment to going back to surplus. So that presents themselves with all sorts of contradictions. Oh, yeah, but, you know, the, the, the whole thing about the surplus is a mirage, as uh, Bugs Bunny would say, it seems to me. One of the things I was interested in was, uh, generally speaking, and I know this is very broad brush, very blunt instrument, but uh, often... In our history, our political history, the Liberal Party completely stuffs up the economy, even though I know everybody says they're apparently the ones who know how to run the ship. In actual fact, they generally destroy the economy and then there's a downturn and uh, the uh, Labor Party is voted in to fix it up. I would put it in a slightly different way. Yeah. The Liberal Party stuffs up the management of the economy. The economy itself, as a capitalist economy, cyclically stuffs itself up. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. The only internal dynamic is to go into crisis at some point. Yeah, you know, Sorry. Roughly in a seven to ten year cycle. That's right, yeah. And so what liberals do is that they are inadequate for the ruling class to deal with the problem and therefore the ruling class is more comfortable with a laborist type solution. Now, that brings us, I suppose, that what we, what we, when you see the Reserve Bank Governor, as he was doing in the last day or so, complaining that there must be more government intervention to do some heavy lifting to help him out, then you know that the status quo is marching towards its dead end. That's right. And so... Within Because the, these, these, these people be, have got flabby muscles. They're not actually into heavy lifting. Yeah, he knows damn well that monetarism is not going to work, but he's got what the problem he's got. He's got a government that believes in monetarism and not government intervention. The role of government intervention for the people like Morrison is only to intervene to make the working class weak so it can't stick up for itself. That's right. So that's my second main point about that we know that the crises are not going to go away, they're going to continue, and that that does not just open up opportunities for uh, working-class organisations, but also that not just that opportunities, but imperatives to critique their own performance. So my third talking point is really about the Change the Rules campaign, which is what you and I talk about mainly. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the most important point I've heard from Sally McManus since the election, which is really important for us to understand, is that we are at the end of the second year of this campaign. And to think that we were going to win the most important things in two years would was naive. And anyone who thought that, and you know that the way you and I have talked is 
over this program is that we haven't thought like that. But anyone who did think that we were going to win in this at this particular time on the most important things would be naive. And, because, and that's shown really, that was shown before the election in terms of how minimalist and least decisive were the proposals put forward by the Labor Party in terms of changing the rules in the Fair Work Act. Well, it you, was it, a minimalist it, program. Yeah, yeah. It, it did not it, offer power to workers. No, I, I had the theory. My theory was, and you, you know how humans like to see patterns in things or get explanations in things. I thought it was because they were providing a small target, you know, to the uh, pundits, so that uh, that wasn't it wasn't possible for the uh, Murdoch media to get a grip on their oiled up bodies, as it were. Well, let's sharpen that a little bit. The uh, the essence of labourism is to come up with a program that does not offend the necessities of the corporations. That's right. So it's got to do something that is tangible and attractive to enough people in the labour movement, but at the same time does not um, does not offend the in a serious way the rich and powerful in the corporations. And that's what their program was doing. It was not... Its ambition was relative. It was not that ambitious ambitious relative to what is actually objectively needed for workers, but it was ambitious relative to what this government would be prepared to do. And now it will concoct this government a mandate assisted by the Australian Industry Group and the Business Council, a mandate to probably make new amendments to the rules to make them even tougher for workers, to choke what little... to try, I'm going to say try, and choke whatever uh, uh, campaign development would get underway. So I think Sally's right to talk about a two-year period, uh, two years not being enough, because as she says, it's fighting thirty years of the thinking, the ideology associated with trickle-down economics infecting the heads of the majority of the population. So, and we should remember, if we go, if we think in terms of the anniversary of the 1969 national strikes is that they did not happen because Clary O'Shea went to jail. They happened fundamentally because of 10 years of organising and education. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. I I found that out, yes. And that, so 10 years at 55% union density, that's a big difference to where we are at right now. Now, can can I also uh, talk, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but um, the elephant in the room, of course, is the Queensland vote and Uh particularly the, uh, as been shown, the uh, working class, people who are uh, less well-educated, it's been pointed out, and people who have uh, relatively insecure work and uh, low pay have... Um, linked arms in a traditional sense with the ruling class? Well, I don't completely agree with that analysis. Okay, tell me what you think. We're looking at the mining towns, the mining population. Yeah. The starting point for us should have been, but wasn't, Mm -hmm. that the 
rate of exploitation of workers in the mining industry, though it goes up and down a bit, it's on average around five to seven times the rate of exploitation across the whole workforce. Okay. Now, if we go to them and say we're going to do this, this and this, without starting with that reality, yep, and the reality that every day, especially if they're working in coal mining, yeah, they are producing the raw material that enables us to power our homes and some of our other basic necessities. If we don't start with that reality, then we are going to run into problems. And the biggest, I think the biggest strategic mistake made during the campaign was the Adani convoy. Not a bad concept in the sense that let's have some real dialogue between people who live in the cities and people who live in the mining regions, but appallingly conceived and self-indulgent in its execution, and not enough respect paid to the starting point for the experience of workers in the mining industry. Now, if you if you see, and then of course you had Labor talking weasel words when it came to Adani, captured most appallingly by Tanya Plibersek on Q and A a few days before polling day, uh, and you know that that the Labor movement is going to have big problems. And then, of course, you have factors like uh, Palmer deliberately spending oh, yes. 60 to $90 million in order to destroy uh, the Labor vote relative to uh, the coalition vote. Uh, but also, it was pointed out by somebody, and it hasn't been brought, talked about much, but it should be talked about, in Port Augusta, the big uh, solar yes. plant. Now, they just... You know, not very uh, long before the election, they actually lost. Uh, they didn't get the funding that they needed in order to com- to continue with that project. That that is a scandal. Well, it, it is, and uh, but I, I I think it's and and, and it's, it's very important. The critical thing, though, is that is that. We, we, we're only two years into a strategic campaign. Where I think I have a problem with where Sally is heading with the Change the Rules campaign, and it reveals itself relative to the, what happened to the working class vote in central Queensland, in northern Tasmania, and in the outer suburbs, is, is that there are clearly are problems, weaknesses, in the Change the Rules campaign itself. And they do need to be discussed openly and critiqued. And what what are you talking about in terms of the weakness of that campaign? Are you talking about what they're asking for or uh, how they're going about it? I think a bit of both. I think I think the, uh, the priority that shifted, when the campaign shifted from being a mixture of industrial and electoral to being solely electoral, yeah, big, dis- big mistake. Of the things that were about workers' power. Yeah, big mistake. And we started, we started endorsing Labor's agenda, which was about new power for the institutions that have been stuffing everybody up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, in fact, I had conversations with people about this, or rather people had conversations with me about it. Yes, and a lot of people are sort of grappling to get their heads around that, but are trying to in a very good way, I think. Oh, yeah, and also people remember what happened after work choices. Yes. 
They remember. People remember. And what's going to be most interesting is that we don't actually see the Labor Party getting in and then failing to deliver. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to toss in two more things about change the rules. Um, that, that in terms of ongoing... Stra- well, three things, very quickly. Firstly, I think one of the key weaknesses is that the quality of political economy knowledge at the grassroots level... Yeah, it's pretty important change the rules is totally inadequate Mm. and that means that people are not confident to be combative when they hear ruling class economics coming out of the mouths of workers say that again well if the activists do not have a strong grasp of the political economy of exploitation yep then they are not going to be able to be combative. And I don't mean that about that in a fighting sense. No, no, what you mean is they I mean, aren't in, going in, to be in, able in a to... a battle of ideas. Yeah, they're not able to translate. They hear yeah, that ruling class ideas about how the economy works expressed by workers, then they're not going to have confidence in being able to explain why the workers have got it wrong because workers do get that wrong. We, we can't dodge that. The majority of workers do not actually are comfortable with... Well, sorry, they're not comfortable, but they, are, they accept sufficiently the way in which they are being dominated at work. And they express those ideas, which are really bosses' ideas, and we don't have the political economy to be able to engage with them on it at the grassroots level. Now that, so what, what, that are, what are you saying? You're sa- no, no, but Don, 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 are you saying that there's a whole swathe of workers who have ingested the message of the bosses and they spout that what the bosses are saying, thinking that it's in their best interest and there is no argument for them to undo that propaganda? Uh, yeah. Yes, but in a contradictory way. They are pushed and pulled between it. Right, okay. Yeah, and, and so it infects their thinking and then there is a resistance to it as well. And if we do, But the key to strengthening their resistance to it is to be able to dissect what's wrong with the boss's ideas about how the economy works. Yeah, because it's pretty interesting because this crew that are, have just been re-elected are not actually very clever. I mean, they're not actually very clever people. Well, uh, they're more clever than us. Well, and that's the bit that uh, probably rankles. I'm being a bit provocative there. I think yeah. that's probably a bit extreme. No, I, no, no, I, but I, the I point is that um, if, if you had a broken down car, you wouldn't take it to them, even if they had a shingle out the front saying that they were mechanics. That's what I'm really getting at. That worries they me. Not, they are not going to fix the, the, the two big problems. And this is not just because I don't agree with them. Yeah. Well, well, working people are, I think, very ready to look for a rational and clear and logical explanation about why they're getting such a raw deal and what the alternative is. And we... When it comes to the economics of it, we are not strong enough at all levels of the movement, at all levels. 
our leadership on understanding how the economy works at all levels is inadequate. And that's one thing we have to fix. Um, I think there are... Uh, I've gone on a bit longer about that than I thought, so I'll be a little bit more provocative. I'll say this. Is that over the next three to four years, the ongoing development of the strategy as an industrial strategy does not depend upon unity. Solidarity is critical, but unity is not. And let me explain quickly what I mean. Solidarity with mindful militancy makes a much bigger difference to the balance of power than unity that dilutes a determined and mindful militancy. If we go to what we remember about 1969, the national strikes, is that the, the industrial, the union movement was split. The groupers did not support the actions until some of their members were drawn into it eventually. The left unions paved the way. Yep. And they built up the critical mass over 10 years so that the opposition of the group of unions to that sort of solution to the use of penal powers against workers um, was, uh, was on a momentum that could not be stopped. And so we, we, have, to think, we have to think clearly about how it may start with a small group of unions and then gradually evolve into much bigger groups of unions pursuing a solidarity-based mindful militancy. That is the sort of strategy we've got to work at. Uh, the, um, the left, to the left of the Labor Party and the Greens, they have a primary responsibility, in my view, uh, to look at their own inadequacies. It is an embarrassment that apart from Victoria with the Victorian socialists, the left to the left of the Labor Party were absent from the electoral field. But the right-wingers were not. And the centrists who want to look for a humane application of capitalist capitalism, they were they were there. And so we have to... That's just one example of our, our inadequacies. People in my camp, to the left of the Labor Party and the Greens. So we have to do a lot of work about looking at our own political organisation to change that. And that does not mean forming... necessarily mean forming new parties. I don't think that's on at the present time. But I think we can look at things like how to coordinate and make more effective common action by the left within both the Labor Party and the Greens and those who are not in inside there. So, for example, how to connect industrial protest actions, like what's been planned for the end of this month, with the climate change strikes that are being taken by school children. How do you build a relationship between the two uh, that is respectful of both? and doesn't seek to take them over, but to develop them and strengthen them in solidarity. And secondly, uh, I think we've got to critique very carefully, and I'll put it, put it this way, is that the get-up approach 
is loaded with weakness because fundamentally it's a comfort zone that enables people to really avoid the development of genuine left political momentum. And it, it's, it's a comfort zone for middle-class radicalism, and it's not enough. Hmm. We have to look at how we build, uh, how, we ta- how the left takes seriously its own responsibilities to look at, at its own relationships with the broader working class. And finally, the working class we have now is very different to 1969. Those groups, the small groups, the sects who want to lord 1969, need to take a deep breath and remember that that was all on the back of 55% union density and 10 years of preparation. And, and therefore, a strategy had to be developed. We don't yet have a strategy. We have some ideas towards it, but that becomes our primary task, and if that includes how to lift that up in the way along the lines of the ideas that I've been floating and I'm not the only one um, about uh, how we keep the industrial return rejig and rebuild the industrial strategy and change the rules okay all right thanks very much for that that's a very it gives gives us lots of food for thought that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We started off with a discussion given by Liz Humphreys, uh, her book, How Labor Built Neoliberalism, Australia's Accord, the Labor Movement and the Neoliberal Project, and her contentions around the involvement of the uh, labor movement in the development of neoliberalism in Australia. We moved on to listen to Justin Aka Chacon from the USA talking about grassroots actions against neo-fascist organisations in America. It's a heartening uh, thought that uh, creative uh, responses in an activist style can be so effective. Uh, moving on, we had This Is The Week That Was, and uh, we followed that with a discussion with Don Sutherland about what happened at the election on Saturday and what it means to the Change The Rules campaign. But uh, next week, uh, tune in for uh, the second part of that conversation with Don, uh, a little less formal, uh, very informative. Okay, signing off. was greener years ago I swear it used to grow here but no more here tell me why on this hill all the birds they used to come to fly here come to die here and tell me why I need to know sometimes I wish I didn't have to know
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.